Views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and contributors, and not necessarily those of WFSU Public Media. What's the 411? You're tuned in to 411 Teen, a weekly program for teens, families, educators, and other interested folks. 411 Team provides a forum to examine and discuss various issues and events that confront, intersect, and sometimes interrupt our daily lives. Roll Back the World is a sister's memoir about the many complexities that impact a family when the oldest sibling has a severe and chronic mental health condition. Author Deborah Kasdan recounts how personal and legal battles with the mental health system exacerbated distress and conflict within the family. This memoir explores the chronic mental illness that plagues our society today. The author's father helped to start NAMI, National Alliance on Mental Illness. Author Deborah Kasten has a 35-year career of writing about business and technology. After joining Westport's Writers' Workshop, her personal stories come alive. As the second sibling of four, Deborah struggled for decades with painful emotions of grief, shame, and survivor's guilt before sharing her story and her family's. In 2021, the government estimated that 14 million adults had serious mental illness. Deborah talks honestly with 411 Teen about chronic mental illness that plagues our society today. Joining me via the Zoom platform from Norfolk, Connecticut. Yep. I will, Norwalk. No, oh, Nork. Okay. Connecticut. Norwalk, yeah. Oh, Connecticut. I mm-hmm. welcome Deborah Kasten. Thank you for sharing, first of all, your story in Roll Back the World. Um, I just want to, you know, applaud you on your book. Um, what was the impetus for you writing it? Oh, I just want to say thank you for having me, Liz. Um, <clears throat> I'm glad to talk to teens and families. Um, this is such an important audience mm-hmm. and something I I share a lot of issues with um, in this story. The impetus my sister died in 2003 and all of a sudden I just had this feeling I had to write about her. As you said, I've written for decades for business, uh, doing corporate type writing Mm -hmm. and I, but I had never written a book before, but I just had this feeling I had to, you know, I talked recently to somebody about this and she happened to be a medium and she said, well, you know, you're channeling your sister. And, you know, I guess Mm -hmm. that's a part of it. I, I never thought of it like that before, but, but I didn't want her to just die anonymously and nobody knew what she went through. So I just decided to, I was going to do it. I surprised myself. Um, I didn't write it right away though. It took Mm -hmm. me a while to get to it. Um, I, I, because I felt at the time that I had a mission on my hands, as I just described, but I also had a mystery because I didn't understand uh, w- how this happened, why her condition got so bad, and mm-hmm. I didn't under I didn't know where she was for periods of time, and I just 
wanted to fill all that in and find find these things out. So I had this mystery, I had this mission, I had my own life to, to lead. Um, so it took some years. I did a lot of research and I started talking to people who knew her. Um, I got tons of documents uh, from the family, from, uh, from psych hospitals, from government. Um, so it wasn't until I retired in 2015 that I actually started working on this full bore ahead. Um, and, you know, I had done a lot of research, but I continued to, to there were always questions I had mm -hmm. and I needed to break the silence I had held. I had never felt comfortable talking to my friends about my sister. I mean, here I was living a so-called normal, comfortable life. And, you know, she was on the street sometime. Um, I didn't have her address sometimes to even write to her because um, we were separated geographically. Uh, and, you know, I felt a lot of shame mm. about that and guilt. So, um, but once I just got into it and once I started sharing with folks in my writing workshops and they didn't run for the doors <laughs> like I expected. Um, yeah, I, I was able to get into it. It took a few years after that, but it was that sense of mission and this mm -hmm. sense of finding out what happened. What's the significance of the title, Roll Back the World? Oh, that's from a poem of hers. Mm -hmm. uh, Rachel was a budding poet uh, when her life kind of fell apart, she started writing high school and in high school. And um, uh, it, she wrote a poem and one of the, um, the, the third verse starts with the phrase, roll back the world. I like to imagine that she wrote this poem um, when she was in Israel mm -hmm. and she was, she was on the shores of the Mediterranean I could read you that verse if you want. Sure, yes. I'd like to hear it. Oh, hold on, just a second. I got to get it. Okay, no problem. Uh, it starts out like this. In delicate aroma, I walked the beach at night where the moon joined sand into sea mm -hmm. and the waves rolled back the world. Here, shattered night makes clean each grain it meets where yesterday a sand crab walked and found its mate for safety. Roll back the world, for so I have been free with a crab and the sea and my shadow on the moonlit beach. Wow. And I think that just expresses so much about mm -hmm. how she felt about life. Mm -hmm. um, she embraced beauty, she embraced nature. She did not want a conventional life. Mm -hmm. um, and I think when she says roll back the world, she's talking to me, she's she's talking about these expectations mm -hmm. that are placed on her. Um, and she she wanted her freedom and she she wanted that love of to to follow her love of mm -hmm. nature and adventure. Did you find writing the book was therapeutic for you at all? And, you know, you wrote about the challenges of your sisters, her very existence. Um, and did you find that that, ad, that enhanced your insight just about? Yes. Oh, you did? Yes, it did. Um, <clears throat> it was very painful to write it. 
Mm-hmm. And I needed help. I needed to get some site uh, counseling and therapy while I did it because it just brought back feelings I hadn't dealt with. Um, and so that was difficult. Um, but it was rewarding because I was able to face my survivor's guilt. Um, and that became real to me. You know, why did I have such a good life when she had practically nothing? Mm-hmm. She lost so much. Um, and then there were issues of blame that had always been going back and forth in the family. And I was able to lay that to rest, I think. Um, you know, one, uh, you know, who mm-hmm. could things have been different? Yes, they could have been different, but you know, yeah, but what also, was, was. Yeah. yeah, and we got to remember the time. I mean, yeah, uh-huh. you know, it wasn't 2021. What was that, the 60s? Yeah, the yeah. 19. Yeah, yeah, she was first institutionalized in 1965. Okay. And, mm-hmm. um, mm. you know, they, oh. there were beginning to be some alternative ideas, but. The idea was that the institution would keep her safe, but then they started deinstitutionalizing. Mm-hmm. So yeah. she's out in the community and she's going into really rough boarding houses where they sent her. Right. And my parents were appalled, and all you know, yeah. all, all kinds of issues came up. Um, so it it was a tough time, and uh, people didn't have a lot of choices. Um, right. So. The family did the best they could. They didn't always agree on the best thing. And that's one of the things I write about. Yes. But But there weren't a lot of options either, you know, at that time. That's right. That's right. Did you have a target audience that you were directing your book to? Yeah, that's a good question. I thought, you know, this is a difficult subject. Uh And I realized, you know, nobody's going to pick it as a beach read or a holiday read even. Um, but I thought it might interest people who have members of their own family uh-huh. with, with difficult conditions and who are struggling within their own families. And, you know, the more now that I talk about it more with people, I find everybody says, oh, yeah, my sister, my cousin, uh-huh. exactly. my mother. So I, that, that was my primary target. Also interested, you know, I think for um, students who are uh, studying um, to be in the mental health profession now, mm-hmm. psychology or caseworkers or um, any type of uh, mental health worker. Indeed, indeed. Would, 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 you know, things are different now, but I think that you the can family dynamics. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You can appreciate, you can appreciate the changes and the challenges and the dynamics that the family went through back then, because those are still the changes and the dynamics and the challenges yeah. that they experience today. And that's <laughs> indeed why I wanted to, to read, you know, read your book and, and share it with my listening audience. You were very close to your sister in growing up. What was it about, when you think back, about Rachel's behavior that did not fit? Because my reading of your book, I got a feel that you were uncomfortable with her behavior very early on. I know she was always at odds with your mom. Yeah. 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 And and she was very confrontational, and I hated confrontation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was this incident where, gosh, I must have been 10 years old. She must have been 13, you know, just mm-hmm. starting adolescence. 
And she pulled me into a room and said, whose side are you on, mom or dad's? Because they had their issues. And, mm -hmm. you know, my parents fought a lot. And she was from birth, for reasons I do go into, that I, I think caused, may have caused it, mm -hmm. uh, very antagonistic towards mom. And she wanted me to be on dad's side. But I love them both. And I didn't want to commit. Uh, I think I just kind of crept out of there without picking sides. But you know, the, there was a lot of fighting going on. So that was very difficult. Um, you know, I, I didn't like fighting. <laughs> and uh, and that was uh, one of the things I didn't like. But there were things I did like that emulated her. For well, instance... Hold your thoughts. I, and we're, this is one of those times when I was telling you we're going to have fine. to take a break. Right, and you can come back. Down. Yeah, okay. And you can, we'll come back to you. You're tuned in to 411 Team. Just tuning in. The program is 411 Team. I'm Dr. Liz Hollyfield, and I have my guest today is Deborah Caston. She is the author of a book, Roll Back the World. It's her memoir about her sister who had severe mental health condition. Deborah, I had to interrupt you, but will you continue mm -hmm. your thoughts? Yes, so we were talking about my feelings mm -hmm. when my sister Rachel was young. And uh, how I did not like the, the confrontation and the fights with my mother. But there were things she did that I emulated. For instance, she we all took a music lessons and she practiced her piano. So I practiced the piano. Mm -hmm. um, she learned, uh, she took a special typing class uh, when she was in uh, starting high school on the old typewriters. Mm -hmm. And uh, I took her book. And I learned to touch type, but you know, you, mm -hmm. you, they have these little tests to see how fast you can go. And um, and so I took it to trying to keep up with her. So there, there was a very positive type of competition in the sense that I emulated her. Um, and, you know, when I started school, she told me what to expect. I even remember she told me in kindergarten, oh, that when I started first grade, you can't just talk. You have to raise your hand if you want to talk. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, she warned me. And then mm -hmm. in high school, she told me what teachers to take. So um, there was a lot of things I wanted to emulate, mm -hmm. um, but as well as the things that disturbed me. When you think about the, the family dynamics and the challenges, how did her mental illness impact the other family members. Now, you had both of your parents, you had an intact family were there, and you had, uh, what, another sister and a brother. Yeah. 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 I I think I, I, I talk in my book how it was just like a crater hit us. Mm -hmm. uh, when she was institutionalized at the age of 25, involuntarily, um, and I would say it was horribly traumatic for her, but it was traumatic for us in other ways, you know, not so directly, of course. Mm -hmm. um, I was, <clears throat> I just finished my first year of college. So I had one foot out the door, the house. Mm -hmm. My brother was just starting college. He was a year behind me. And our younger, our younger sister was only 13. She was in junior high. Um, and we each had our own history, our own issues. And and so it, it affected us differently, you know. Mm -hmm. we, it did. 
the, this this shock, the shock waves hit us and you know hit our past and our personalities, making different different responses. Um, you know, it was some time before my younger sister said, "Well, I hardly knew Rachel when she was well." And my brother and I hardly knew her when, she, you know, when she was was not well. Mm -hmm. So we had such different experiences oh. of her. Um, so we didn't, you know, we didn't get together and talk about what was happening. I was away at a summer camp working as a counselor and my younger sister was there as a camper. Uh, my brother was off doing something or other. And... <laughs> So my parents just committed her and then we found out and I, I just didn't know what to make of it. And, and I was supposed to comfort my little sister because she was having stomach aches mm -hmm. when we were told by the camp director that this had happened. And, and they said, oh, can you go talk to Julie? She, she's having stomach aches, you know, and she had her own issues at camp. She was uh, very physically very young for her age and mm -hmm. you know was always mm -hmm. felt like a, well the, all those issues so but I I was just so confused and you know I I wasn't really able to help her very much because I, I didn't know understand what was going on you know a friend mm -hmm. of mine just asked this morning you know well somebody should have you know one of your parents should have been at it camp to talk to you about this and I said oh well I don't think it occurred to anyone back then Again, yeah. you know, the norms were the different then. It was very different. Um, so um, then my brother went away to school. Um, I ended up transferring home, I think, because, well, well for a couple of reasons. One reason, I, I felt conflicted about being away. And, you know, my parents had everything to deal with. I, you know, and there's as much as I wanted to get out of this situation, I was drawn back into it. And the other reason was, I met the man who would be my husband mm. and he's the one who was able to hold and comfort me. Um, and so I just held on to him and he was going to work in St. Louis where Rachel was institutionalized and my parents were living where um, I'd gone to high school. And so I wanted to be with him and I, I wanted to, I wanted and I didn't want to be with my family. So mm -hmm. um, I ended up, uh, changing schools. I ended up getting married at a, a younger age than I had ever planned to. I was barely 21. Um, but it worked out because he he was just the man I needed. And um, and I we had a family, yeah, uh -huh. which has which had a lot of advantages. So the changes for me, I think, worked out. They were positive. But in, in that sense, in terms of just mm -hmm. overall lifestyle, but I had a, um, I had to be uh, the good daughter now. So now I was no longer the second child. Uh -huh. I was in effect the oldest, oldest. child, mm -hmm. the oldest functioning child, and um, I that was a lot of pressure on me. Of course, I put that pressure on myself, but you know, I began to get. Um, bouts of depression uh -huh. every time uh -huh. for instance i remember driving i i was getting married i you know was excited but i would drive by a cemetery and just burst into tears nobody i knew had died uh -huh. except well 
Well, in a way, your sister yeah. had. You know? Yeah, the sister I knew was no longer. Well, that's right. Yeah. 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 So uh, I didn't think of that then, though. But I knew uh, I, I knew I wasn't feeling right. Um, again, my husband was so supportive. I went to the student student um, counseling okay. service, but they offered medication to me. Mm-hmm. You know, this was just at the beginning mm-hmm. of that, and I was horrified. You know, there's I I'm not mentally ill. And I said, no, 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 no. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. it wasn't until much later. I, I actually started years later, started getting very bad PMS. And I took, I did take some, some antidepressants then for a while. What about but, your um, parents? What about, what, did they receive any type of support that you are aware of? I mean, yeah. what, how did they handle you know, I mean, the diagnosis of schizophrenia is schizophrenia is a major mental illness, and it can put, you know, you talk about emotional and physical and financial strain on the entire family, um, and they need to they need the support if they can get it. Of course, it wasn't really available, I don't think, at that time. But I wonder how how your parents coped. You know, I um, mean, I know your father was yeah. was was very active, and but your mom was still in the home, um, and she she Rachel seemed to have uh, there was a a lot of tension between them. Yeah, and can you talk a little bit about just how your your family, particularly your parents, handled this? Um. <clears throat> I, and I know you weren't there. I mean, as yeah. yeah, no, but I know because I yeah. talked a lot. I talked a lot with my mother. We, you know, we were in constant. We, we talked, you know, a couple times a week. Mm-hmm. Long distance cost money back then. Yeah, because I'd moved away subsequently. Uh, but uh, yeah, so I was close. So I, I, I know what I know something of what they went through, mm-hmm. particularly my mom. Um, the the hospital where she she was committed. Um, <clears throat> offered what they call family therapy. But my mother felt that she was, when she talked to the woman who ran it, that she was being blamed. So she refused to go back. Well, she may have been, you know, that was a time when it was blame the parents. Yeah. You know, I mean, she, she could be a little defensive. Mm -hmm. Um, She, she had a little bit of a chip on her shoulder because of her life. She had been abandoned Mm -hmm. as a child. Uh, So she was, she had her own needs and her own issues. Um, but mothers were blind. They were blind, particularly. Uh-huh. There was the refrigerator mom who caused autism. And, uh-huh. you know. uh, so, yeah, there was that. Um, so she did not, she did seek some private therapy. Um, and she was encouraged to, to, to work with the, the state hospital. And, you know, that's something I questioned at the time. You know, wouldn't a private yeah. hospital be better? But they were so expensive. And, you know, my parents were middle class, but, you know, you would need to take out mortgages and get mm-hmm. people from family to contribute to to get her to a private psychiatric hospital. And my mother's um, psychiatrist at the time said they wouldn't do anything different. I don't know. So um, how did they cope? So Rachel didn't want to talk to her. Mm-hmm. Uh, so my father was the one who 
brought her what she needed. My mother would prepare the care packages and he would bring them. Now she wasn't in the hospital straight through. They kept releasing her. And then sometimes she would come home too. Um, you know, those first few years, um, they did try to get her out, but she didn't want to stay at home. She wanted to be out. So she would dash off to take a bus to mm -hmm. Chicago, Tulsa, wherever, and get in trouble. She might get arrested, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So they, my father would have to go pick her up. And my mom did not want her mm -hmm. feel that she could deal with her in the home. So that was a lot of conflict. Yeah. When you think about all that you experienced, um, what would you identify as the most difficult component of coping with the mental illness of Rachel? Even though you were, we were, you were in and you were not home and she was mm. in and out of the home, when you think back, what was the most difficult component of that for you? Well, the things I would worry about consciously when we did get together, for instance, when she did stay at my house, one of the one time she did actually, what if she sets the place on fire because mm -hmm. she chain smoked and she dropped her ashes? So my husband says, well, just tell her to smoke outside. I said, oh, okay. And she did. <laughs> I, wor I worried about her, oh, when I was still at home, you know, on vacations and Rachel would be home on a, a pass, mm -hmm. mom would say, uh, oh, make sure she stays home and doesn't go off. So, <laughs> How could you do that? <laughs> yeah, she, she was a pretty strong woman. Mm -hmm. um, things like that. And the, so, uh, you know, confronting her with anything and, and uh, inciting her rage. She was never violent with me, but, mm -hmm. you know, she could shove, you know, shove her way through, mm -hmm. uh, through a room. Um, but in the, so the, those were just the, you know, the, the surface, the, you know, the short-term behavioral things. I think long-term, the hardest issue was talking about it with people, with anybody other than my husband. And, and then when they got older, my children but I didn't like talking about it with my friends. Um, I didn't, and I felt this shame. Mm. I had a friend once, a good friend, when we moved to Connecticut, <clears throat> I met a woman from the South, from Tennessee, and she was a social worker and the most compassionate woman I ever met. She was always taking care of people. Um, and I told her about it. my little sister, you know, she met my parents. But nobody ever said anything about Rachel. I never told her about Rachel. And, you know, once I didn't tell her, I couldn't then start telling her that. Mm -hmm. And I felt it was like lying because it was keeping, we were close friends and I couldn't tell her this. I thought she would judge me. How could you, how could you abandon your sister? You know, by oh, then, okay. Rachel okay. was out West and I felt I had a, you know, I, I wasn't doing anything for her. And so not talking about it, not finding a way to discuss it, you know, so giving in to the stigma. And then I, when uh, my friend moved away, uh, it was diff difficult to keep in touch with her. And I felt I kind of lost a friend uh, because I couldn't be honest. Mm. 
I am talking with Deborah Caston. She is the author of Roll Back the World. It's a sister's memoir about the many complexities that impact a family when the oldest sibling has a severe and chronic mental health condition. Deborah, share with the listening audience how one can purchase and where one can purchase your book. Uh, if you go online and type in my name or the name of the book, you'll find retail stores online, sell it, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, bookshop.org, or you can walk into a bookstore. If they don't have it on the shelf, they can order it. Okay. And the name is Deborah Kasten, K-A-S-D-A-N, correct? Mm-hmm. Okay. That's correct. All right. Uh, you know, I just I was thinking, we were talking about this book. I'm sure a number of the listeners would want to, to read it. Um, so we need to let them know where they can find it, what it's about. Okay. Um, Thank you. What about the community? How did she, uh, how, would, how did Rachel deal in the community? Uh, and I don't had, mean her, health, uh, her hospital community. I mean, you know, your neighborhood community. Yeah. She was a little transgressive. Um, so it was a little hard. Mm-hmm. We had a lovely neighbor backyard, but she did be, you know, in back of us, uh, we had a small backyard, somewhat secluded, but not totally. And mm-hmm. so I said, you know, I saw Rachel, she was outside naked. I mean, you know, so mm-hmm. there were some bizarre, bizarre behaviors. Um, then when she was being put into <clears throat> halfway houses, she could never follow the rules. She just could not follow the rules and uh, would get in trouble uh, mm-hmm. for either drinking, smoking, coming in late, whatever the rule was, she would break it. So she she did find people, the hospital had its own sub-community. So even when she was out, when I say sub-community, I mean people who kept in touch, who had met at the hospital mm-hmm. and they traded things. You know, she was I was always giving her things and then she wouldn't have them anymore. I think there was some type of barter economy going on. I'm not sure. Um, yeah, there usually is in the hospital. Yeah, <laughs> long-term yeah, okay. hospital. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And 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 then I think that would continue even outside when she would be in contact with her friends from the hospital. But it, in in a structured situation, it was very very difficult. Um, now that if I if I jump ahead to the um, later, her later years, it was a, uh, she had been in and out of many hospitals. She had gone from St. Louis. She had, and this is another part of the story we can talk about later. She had ended up in um, Oregon and mm-hmm. uh, was in Oregon, three different Oregon hospitals. And then finally they kind of gave up on her and she was in the back wards of one until a, a really creative and compassionate caseworker uh, got her admitted to a community program. Now, these a local community m- mental health program as opposed to community psychiatry, uh-huh. psychiatry run by the hospitals, which she had first been in. I'm talking about grassroots uh-huh. local Indeed. agencies yeah. that... Um, Provide supportive housing and outpatient treatment. Hold your thought. This is the second 
break we have mm-hmm. to take. You're tuned in mm-hmm. to 411 Teen. We're going to take a quick break. Views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and contributors, and not necessarily those of WFSU Public Media. Schizophrenia is a major mental illness that affects the individual's ability to think and feel and behave and even relate to others. Etiology is eh, genetics, environment, abnormal (laughs) brain chemistry. You know, you can have the effects of drug use. And usually the age of onset is anywhere between 16 and 30. I'm talking with Deborah Kasson. She has written a book about coping when your sister has a major mental illness. Deborah, I had to interrupt you, but you want to continue. So I was I was talking about the community um, mental health worker who got her into the program in Oregon, where she lived the last years of her life with supportive housing and treatment. And he mm-hmm. got her into the program because he read a he found a poem she wrote mm. when she was supposed to be do janitorial okay. duty on a trial, uh, on a on a on a work trial. Mm-hmm. And he he read it to his the staff, and they all agreed she should be in the program. And she, the, the, the program provides housing and coaching in life skills and also um, uh, so some, some level of socialization as much as she wanted uh, through the program. They usually have clubhouse type programs where people can, uh, you know, have, uh, interact uh, do, do activities and spe- and do all different kinds of programming. So uh, she had a limited tolerance for socialization, but mm-hmm. she did. And in the end, she found a community of her own through, uh, she went on her own to uh, a local synagogue and we had never been that religious or observant, but uh, the women found her praying there. They... Mm urged her to clean up and they honored her and they uh, they brought her to um, the the Bema to say prayers and she was honored and this was shortly before she died. Now, wow. Liz, can I address one other thing? Yes, you most certainly may. This schizophrenia is a, a, a terrible illness, but I recently had occasion to meet a lot of people who have been through it and they don't even call it schizophrenia. They call it hearing mm. voices mm. With, or a psychosis. And, yeah. and they have been able, by getting off medication or tapering, some of them, not always, the medication, some people can tolerate it and want it yeah. and some people don't. So they, they find the fit that's right for them. They work with people who have been through it before. And they're just, they're just um, it, achieving great things. Mm-hmm. by by extending their hands to each other and by trying to break to trying to reset the expectation that you can return to a productive life you don't you know maybe it's not productive the way it was before you may not be right. earning right. boatloads of money but you may be creative you may be a peer counselor um there are lots of things you can do mm-hmm. and live with these um uh you know with these disturbing 
voices. I don't know how many, but that was part of Rachel's problem, but she had some thought, her thinking was yeah. disordered. But, you know, with coaching and uh, peer support is very important. Uh, many people, many people can overcome it. And it, if we focus on recovery programs, like you said, yeah, research and brain research and, you know, all that and is all great. Maybe, mm -hmm. they'll, maybe they'll find something eventually and it, it'll help, but it's not going to be an instant cure right away. No. So I think, I think these recovery programs are, are doing a lot right now to help people. Uh, so it's not a sentence. It doesn't need to be as chronic as it was for Rachel. And that's one of the things I wanted to figure out. Why did it become so chronic with Rachel? And I think it was just an unfortunate constellation of well. um, over-medication at the beginning, which lopped off, as I learned from some a lot of her intelligence, because uh -huh. they so over-medicated people. And, um, you know, the uh, insufficiency of the community programs then, uh, they were not well funded yet. Right. The money, yeah. the money that was supposed to follow people from out of the hospitals went into the state general fund or whatever. Exactly. And, yeah. And but I think with robust funding of community programs, not just hospital programs, but community programs, um, there's a lot of hope. So I, I can see what we didn't have to help Rachel. Uh, but I can see that 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 there are opportunities now. Well, I wanted to talk briefly in these last uh, few minutes about your father, and he was mm -hmm. involved in the formation of NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Share um, the background on that. What were the circumstances? How did it lead to that? Well, my dad was a social worker, mm -hmm. and he was always doing things in the community for um, out for um, underserved populations. Um, so it was natural for him, to, when Rachel got ill, he started a parents group uh, uh, for parents with adult schizophrenic. And then that was in the late, very late 60s. So when NAMI uh, got together, they they um, joined up and they changed their name to NAMI and he went up to Wisconsin and he was on, uh, you know, in, in the original meetings that brought people together and he, built up the St. Louis NAMI. He co-founded it and it was, it's a pretty big operation. Yeah. It still is. Yes, um, it is. We yeah. have a chapter and, here uh, in, in Tallahassee, Florida. Yeah. You have a good uh, active NAMI. Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And they're, um, now they have these uh, family to family groups, which mm -hmm. I think are really great in setting expectations for families. I wish I took it, you know, when I started to write the book, but to find out what it was about. And I realized it would have helped a lot if they had had that back then. Um, so, you know, I think siblings, not just parents, you know, parents right. will, most parents will gravitate towards those naturally. Mm -hmm. Siblings, not so much, but I would encourage siblings to, whether even if you're college, come back. <laughs> I yeah. mean, find a way to, to take these uh, family to family course. Well, Rachel, one, one component we have not addressed was the extended family. How did they cope with this? What did what was their understanding of what was happening and what was going on with Rachel? That was hard. 
You mean my like my parents' siblings? Yeah, siblings, grandparents, cousins. Aunt, aunt, yeah. yeah. Uh, grandparents weren't in the picture too much for okay. different reasons. Um, they were uh, grandparents were first generation immigrants and okay. didn't really understand stand it. Siblings. My mother was in conflict with my father's family because she came from a, a poor background and my father's family was little uh, was more well off, more assimilated. Um, so there was always a lot of tension and it kind of intensified. I think she, you know, she wanted their help and understanding and she didn't get it. And um, she was angry about it. Um, her own siblings, I think they gave some moral support. Uh, but uh, Rachel, and that was one of the things Rachel wanted because she felt close to her cousins and aunt and uncle. Mm -hmm. She had lived with them as a child. And um, that was a break uh, that was unfortunate. I think when you have an extended family that can pitch in, it, 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 it can mm -hmm. mean a lot. Mm -hmm. It takes a community and an extended right. family, Indeed. an extended family's community. But my parents, because of the lifestyle they led, moving from one city to another, uh, because of their politics, which was very progressive and out there and kind of alienated them from my father's family. Um, there was that, a break that, that prevented that from happening. Do you think that Rachel was aware at all of the difficulties she was experiencing? Yeah, that's she, something that... You think she knew so, she kind of marched to a different drummer? She knew she marched to a different drummer. She did. She was she had a lot of pride. She did not want to admit there was anything wrong with her. She was a poet. She wanted mm -hmm. to. She wanted to travel. Now you know they say that lack of insight is some. I mean, lack of insight is a symptom of. Yes. Uh, of yeah. yeah. So that can get you in trouble if you don't admit that you're sick. You're right. going to get you're going to get committed. Um, so she 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 was she didn't admit it. She she got lawyers to, you know, court appointed lawyers to mm -hmm. fight institutionalization. But then. I when I read her work, she she sent me what she wrote for safekeeping when she mm -hmm. was in and out of the hospitals on the street. And she talked about having schizophrenia eyes. They tell me I'll be like this for life. So I know that even though she wouldn't talk about it, she was too proud mm -hmm. that that I, that she thought about it. Was there a stigma associated mm. at this time? Was there a stigma associated with with yeah. her mental yeah. illness? What? How did she handle that? How did you all handle that? Well, as I said, I kept silent. Mm -hmm. um, my brother you know, he had his own ideas on what was wrong with Rachel and made them a lot more physical and wanted her to, her to get out of the hospital. Her diabetes wasn't, he didn't want her diabetes mm -hmm. treatment to continue. So he brought in his own issues. Um, and I found it very difficult to talk about it because it does seem, it's irrational, but it seems like a moral failing. Mm -hmm. There's no, re I know it doesn't make any sense to think that, but you can't help it. That's mm -hmm. you no know, like so. It's Halloween today. Look yes. at the um, 
look at the, you know, people take tours of mental hospitals, crazy people. Um, you know, they blame violence on, on mentally ill people who are, commit only you know, maybe a, a fraction of a percent oh, yeah. more violence, yeah. um, but are mu much more sinned against than sinned. Um, yeah, look at the movies, you mm -hmm. know, the, the, and, and this, the ideas of what a split personality is, the, all the, the things that are played up in the media. So yeah, there's a stigma. There's, there was a stigma and I think there still is. Oh, there is, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What would you, do you have any suggestions in these last few minutes here that you might offer First of all, families who yeah. are experiencing exactly what you went through or similar to what you went through with someone in their family, in their immediate family, that's suffering from a chronic mental illness. Yeah. All right. When, when you first get into this situation, get together and talk about it. Talk about your feelings. Find somebody to help you to deal with the the feelings as a family. Um, if if you when you do get separated because of whatever life circumstances, jobs, you know, college, keep in touch. Don't don't let time go by without keeping in touch. Keep in touch with your loved one who's suffering, even though they may not want to hear from you for a while. Mm -hmm. Don't don't give up. And you know, you can grieve for the person you think you lost, but there's somebody else there who, who may have other capabilities that you never had before. Um, so, so nurture whatever, whatever capabilities you see in your loved one. Uh, and, and don't, don't let the, any separations become permanent. I, I regret that I, years went by sometimes when I didn't see my sister, just keep those ties Keep those ties mm -hmm. going. Again, would you share where one can get your book? I'm talking with Deborah Caston, author of Roll Back the World. Online or at a store. Uh, also, I have a website that has that. Uh, links to all the places you can order, deboracaston.com. Uh, so go online, you'll find it. Okay, all right. Um, when you think about the, all the changes that you and your family have experienced, what have you learned? Oh, that families have love as well as conflict and keep that love going, keep the spark going. Um, don't try to avoid blame. Um, and just don't be judgy. Don't judge don't judge each other. Uh, and don't be ashamed if you can't help directly. Reach out to the community health programs, relatives, as you said, if you have them, extended family, if if that's not possible, to, to look for community agencies, fountain house type of organizations that pr provide recovery. And, and stay together. Any resources you may offer that you may have found to be very helpful in this journey? As I discussed, uh, NAMI, NAMI chapters will provide crisis, uh, somebody to talk to in a crisis, and as I say, courses. Uh, 
Mm -hmm. um, for people with schizophrenia, there's a new group called Hearing Voices Network, um, and they're doing a lot of work with peer specialists, helping people uh, get through those episodes of uh, voice hearing. Um, and, you know, sometimes your, um, your religious leader can be helpful and mm -hmm. help you find resources, mm -hmm. your pastor or rabbi. Uh, Okay. And 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 keep and look up look up uh, resources online. There's plenty, but be careful what you believe. You know everything's okay. not true. <laughs> so uh, be a smart consumer of inf of the information you find. What's the main takeaway that you want folks to have from from this book? That you can work through your survivor's guilt, your guilt about what happens to your family. It may take a long time. But by opening up and writing this book, I was able to tell my sister that I loved her mm -hmm. and I became close to her again in a way that I hadn't for many years. Before we close, first of all, I do want to say thank you. Thank you for your time in writing the book. I found it to be really very insightful. Um, before we close, are there any particular words of wisdom that maybe, is there any area that I didn't talk about that you, you know, just want to draw attention to? Just that, do, take care of your own needs. Writing brought, as I said, brought me closer to my sister. Mm -hmm. It's important to talk about things that sometimes you're afraid to talk about. It's important to be in a community, find your community. And don't don't be weighed down by guilt if if you're unable to help for long periods of time. Okay. Well, it is time out for this edition of 411 Teen. Deborah, I cannot express it enough, but again, thank you so much for writing the book. So many, many thanks to Deborah Caston, author of Roll Back the World, a sister's memoir. To my listening audience, much appreciation for your time and ear. I'm Dr. Liz Hollyfield, inviting you to tune in next week, same time, same place, to get the 411 on 411 Team. Four One One Team was produced by Dr. Liz Hollyfield. Technical assistance was provided by Evan Rossi. If you would like to participate in the 411 team or have suggestions for discussion topics, call 850-645-7200. You can listen to previous episodes of 411 team at wfsu.org.